from 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Theaters are a magnet drawing people downtown, and those audience members are often patrons at restaurants. But for more than a year, the Providence Performing Arts Center, affectionately known as PPAC, has been shuttered due to the pandemic. When will the stage lights once again shine bright at the historic theater? And how has PPAC been able to weather the storm? Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi and our guest this week to talk about the future of the performing arts in Rhode Island is the president and CEO of uh, PPAC, Lynn Singleton. Lynn, it's good to have you back in the studio. Good morning, Tim, Ted. Um, basic question, when will the curtain rise again? Well, actually, uh, the building, the administrative part of the building, we never closed. We still... Uh, uh, I think you know the question, though, Lynn. When, yeah. are, when will shows return? When can people... I would think, because uh, we're presently doing like dance recitals and small things given the, within the uh, uh, confines of capacity restrictions, but I would think the major shows, which you're referring to, yeah. will be like mid to late fall. Mid to late fall. Mid to late fall, which is, if you think about it, of course, we all kind of lost track of time with this uh, intramural, it's six months away. So if we reflect where we were six months ago, imagine where we can be in six more months. Right. Well, I got to ask you, we're taping this on a Friday, uh, and PPAC is announcing its 21-22 season on Tuesday. Can you give us any hints? Oh, PJ would kill me. <laughs> Come on. What's the That's first, my That's my what's the first show? Can That's you my marketing director. She'd kill me. All right. It's big. It's big. It's big. You, okay. you always say always that. a showman, right? Exactly. It's going to be uh, big. Now your timing there, Lynn's a little later than what the announcement we just saw in California, where it looks like they're going to do full house performances in mid June. Um, is there a reason you think it'll be a little more conservative on this coast? Probably because we're not recalling our governor. You, think? <laughs> you said uh, it, not me. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's you know we're thrilled to see that. You know, just not being an East Coast guy, it seems a tad aggressive. Um, and we're going to be a little late to the party. One of uh, the things we've said all along is we're not going to sacrifice the public safety for soon. Uh, and uh, anecdotally, I'm friendly with the Nylanders in New York, and the Hamilton set has been sitting on the theater they own and operate in downtown L.A. for the last 13 months. Mm. And Hamilton was scheduled to uh, reopen uh, in October, and now they're considering reopening earlier. So, you know, like I say, we, we're going to be a little late to the party. Our reopening will be, uh, you know, more phased and more cautious. And I think that's, you know, uh, given all that's happening in the world, I think that's the prudent thing to do. Let me ask you, uh, it can be hard for people to keep uh, track of kind of the business effect on different industries. You know, we know the ones that have been affected most, the arts and performance, restaurants, hotels. But there have also been some grants and things like that to help. I mean, how tough has the financial hit been on PPAC, or have you been able to get grants and things to kind of offset it? I mean, you've been dark now for, for a year. Well, the industry in whole, as whole has, was the first one in, and I think and will be the last one out. Uh, it's been catastrophic. Uh, fortunately for PPAC, uh, we, had, we had reserves. The state stepped up and uh, we received a grant from them uh, to help for our operating. And uh, the programs that we did, we continued to do some of our, uh, most of our community outreach programs. Of course, we switched to streaming. But sponsors like uh, John Hayes and White from TACO and 
Navigan and Harbor One and um, Bank Newport, I'm gonna leave somebody out, uh, all stepped up and helped underwrite those performances. And we, you know, my, my line was initially we focused on the four P's, and those were personnel, performances, PP and P, and uh, not like forget, and projections. Mm -hmm. And the projections were like goalposts, they kept moving. <laughs> then one day they were this, and one day they were that. But I mean, we made, we made like all of our uh, colleagues, we made significant cuts. Uh, initially in uh, midsummer, uh, we we either furloughed, lay off, or work shared uh, two thirds of the staff. Mm. So it's an enormous, enormous. Burden. I mean, and so uh, the people who work at PPAC or the actors who come through and everything have those folks obviously just spent the whole year you know collecting and just waiting for things to reopen especially the artistic people because they're not their their skills are not as transferable if you lay off a digital marketing person very likely they can go find another job or an accountant i mean we're we're in an, an administrative more body uh, or a you know those type of their their tr skills are transferable over in their other jobs especially now as the economy started to come back in other places. Ted mentioned grants, and uh, one I want to talk about is the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant. Uh, this is a program uh, by the Small Business Administration, and they provide loans to help theaters continue to weather the storm. And I want to bring up a website, because I went to the portal this morning and found this on the screen. I don't know if viewers can see it at the bottom, but it's not good. It says, due to technical difficulties, <laughs> SBA has temporarily suspended the uh, application portal. SBA is working closely, and they'll get it back up as soon as um, possible. An inauspicious start, to say the least. Was PPAC able to apply for a grant, or did you run into this too? Actually, we put up. We have all of our documentation prepared, ready to go. And like the rest of our um, folks in our kind of in our same situation. Uh, uh, are doing the same. I smile when I heard it went down. I thought to myself, it's a, something that I heard a long time ago of technology uh, over promises and sometimes under delivers. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and these things do happen, as we all know. Uh, so I'm sure, uh, and I will, congr I will congratulate uh, and, and thank heartily Senator Reed for helping and the rest of the congressional delegation for helping get the bill passed. And Mark Hayward from the local SBA office has been nothing but helpful and, uh, and, and you know, reached, immediately reached out, said there was a problem, they're gonna fix it. My, um, my feeling is, okay, take your time, fix it, and do it right so we don't have another, you know, hiccup. So the cap on that grant is $10 million, correct? Uh, is, that, is that enough uh, for PPAC? Are you going to apply for the full $10 million grant? Well, the way it works is, it, and it's, it's, it's a little like Hunger Games. The, the, <laughs> the way it works is um, you, you can apply and you're eligible in tranches of money, and you have to justify how you're going to spend that money because if you don't spend it in the categories you say you're going to spend it for you give it back mm. you don't get to keep it so it's not like being frugal is going to help you uh, so we put together a budget i uh, can't remember exactly what the number was but things in it like uh, we're going to put a, a an eyes on uh, filtering system in the building that costs probably a quarter of a million dollars a lot of money but you know we'll put that in and and that and then we'll then our, our life, when I say we're going to, our first big shows will be in October, well, you can't wait to bring all your staff back to October. You have to ramp up because the, the theater business is, you live in the future tense. So, and you're going to incur expenses which you have no revenue or little if any revenue to put against it. So we put the staff in. Fortunately, they fund depreciation. So all the things, we had no facility fee this year to do 
capital items with. So with them funding depreciation, we'll be able to go and do, you know, pay off the balance of what we did on the front of the building. I mean, so it, it's, it's, it, it's a, uh, my analogy is it's the Marshall Plan, showing my age, it's the Marshall Plan for the theater industry. Mm. And, it, and uh, Billy uh, uh, Brackett yesterday from the Stagehand Union uh, had an even better analogy. He said it was kind of like the paddles that, you know, when you, they wheel you in the operating room and your heart stops and they put them down and say clear. That's exactly what it's going to do. Very dramatic only. analogy. Yeah. yeah. You, Lynn, you, you actually work, uh, you're, there's a subsidiary of PPAC that manages other um, uh, venues in other parts of the country, and you also obviously are in contact constantly with other folks in the, in the arts and live performance world. How much permanent damage do you think has been sustained by the crisis of the last year? And how much do you think, you know, when vaccinations are enough, when the restrictions are lifted, boom, you snap back to kind of where you would have been in March of last year? That's the $64,000 question. How fast will people come back? I don't have the answer to that. Uh, I know they want to come back. I can see now that people are starting to travel. I mean, they want to, uh, you know, they want to travel places. I think, uh, I think the fall may be a little bumpy. That's another reason for the, the uh, shuttered venues money. I, I think we may do, as I always say, we're the last person that gets paid. So I think some shows we may book may not achieve the financial results. So we've got, you know, a parachute. I don't actually know that. I do think it will take a while for people, including myself, to be comfortable to be sitting next to somebody. Uh, and uh, of course, a lot of that will be market and show dependent. Mm -hmm. We are all, speaking of being in other places, we are, we are already doing shows in uh, Lee County, Fort Myers, Florida, uh, and we can do it at full capacity. Under being cautious, we're doing shows at half capacity uh, instead of 1,800 seats, 900 seats, and they're selling out. But that's leaked. So, yeah, when you think about October, and I know it's all contingent, but do you imagine trying to do a full house, you know, off the top? Do you think, like, every other seat is the kind of thing you might be doing at that point? The Broadway business plan does not work unless we can open at 100% capacity. Mm. Can you screen for people uh, who may have been or who are vaccinated or not vaccinated? Is that on the table, that discussion to ask people or even require it, Lynn? The, um, the soundbite I heard the other day, which I kind of like, was, uh, and, and this is happening uh, in uh, the uh, Foxwood Casino, opened, uh, did four sold-out shows of Dave Chappelle at 4,000 seats a show. And uh, the... Um, uh, their thing, the, the, the statement was made, it was all about MTV. It was masking, uh, testing, and vaccination. That's today. So if you wanted to go see Dave Chappelle, you had to wear a mask, you had to be vaccinated, or while you were standing there ready to go in, you were tested. Mm, rapid tested. Rapid tested. Now okay. that's, that's... Are you gonna implement that? Well, is six months from now, will that be needed? Okay. Uh, the one thing we've discussed, uh, and this, you know, this is not an oh, by the way, all the touring shows have, uh, have uh, contractually have started to obligate all the buildings that if, to, for them to play your building and for you to sign that contract, everybody they come in contact with in that building has to be vaccinated. Interesting. That's in the contract. That's now in for the, the contract. Wow. And the discussion internally at PPAC 
and and you know and I, I have met no resistance to this and have support of our chairman is that when you come to PPAC anybody you encounter be it a part-time employee a full-time employee or a volunteer usher will have been fully vaccinated now that's because what we have to do is we have to give people comfort and we have to give people peace of mind you mentioned Broadway, and uh, this is something I was talking to uh, one of your staff members actually a little about how you guys are thinking this through. And she said, you know, don't forget that we are downstream from the Broadway openings. So the shows that are hits on Broadway this season might, next season or the season after, the national tour might be coming to PPAC and the buzz from the Broadway version there. And of course, no new Broadway shows have been opening because of things being shuttered. How is that going to affect the pipeline of shows you're booking? As you said, you're in the future, you're always talking about your booking three years away well fortunately for us uh, we open a lot of shows so what will come out because of our tax credit which the state uh, uh, enabled us to have a number of years ago which saddles up against the film tax credit and so people are always new shows are always interested in opening here so that helps us gives us a, gives us a leg up and the way the Broadway artistic world worked about this time the shows in late April March April of, la of when it would have been last year they stopped, so everything got frozen. So, so now they're gonna pick all those shows up and they're gonna put those down presently in New York. One of the shows that we, were, we are scheduled to do, uh, hopefully this year, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, which is the life story of the Temptations, uh, is um, reopening and is, uh, this fall in New York and uh, will, um, uh, is already got tickets on sale. Jagged Little Pill, the same thing. Uh, six, which is the story of the wives of Henry the uh, seventh or the eighth. So there is product, but you're right. There's going to be, and New York is, a, they're in a very difficult place because 65% of the tickets bought in New York for Broadway shows do not have New York zip codes or the car the carriage around them, and 50% of the tickets for Broadway shows in New York are bought in the last 10 days. Mm -hmm. So it's a different business model than we have. Lynn, we, we have to go to break, but I do want to ask you one last question. Um, I, I, I wonder when, when the first show returns, the lights go up, the curtain goes up, I imagine you're going to be there. What's that moment going to be like for you? Uh, very rewarding, uh, not only for myself, but for our staff. Um, one of the things that I would say to the staff there, because you know you're you're always dealing with what's in front of you, so my job is to kind of look at the horizon, you know, and keep because uh, you know it's it's been a tough slog, and there's that low grade depression everybody has because everybody's has is having their own pandemic, mm. you know, given they got kids, all that type of thing. It'll be very rewarding, uh, and uh, you know, so, and I, you know. I, I, I don't know actually it, it'll it'll be it'll be interesting for everybody included including the performers right if you think about that uh, and uh, so hopefully it'll happen uh, sooner rather than later though Lynn Singleton president CEO of PPAC thanks so much for joining us on the program when we come back a major bust in unemployment fraud in Rhode Island plus what you need to know from the week in news stay with us you're watching newsmakers
Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics editor Ted Nisi. Uh, on Thursday, the U.S. Attorney's Office announced 15 Rhode Islanders were charged in a sweeping federal case accused of fraudulent, fraudulently obtaining unemployment benefits from 11 different states. I was at that news conference for the announcement. Here are some of what they said. What these individuals are accused of doing is despicable. It is critical that every dollar spent goes to those who need it, not to the greedy con artists trying to cheat the system. Unfortunately, our investigators have found that is exactly what's been happening. This fraud has had an incredible effect on everyday Rhode Islanders um, who are entitled to unemployment benefits and can't get through to DLT, can't access DLT because of the fraudulent conduct of these individuals. Each of these individuals on their own filed fraudulent applications with the Rhode Island Department of Labor and Training as well as in other states. In this latest investigation, we've identified fraudulent applications filed in 11 states that resulted in unemployment insurance payments of more than $578,000, including $126,000 from Rhode Island. Of speakers, in order of speakers, there was the head of the Boston office of the FBI, Joseph Bonavalanta, followed by Attorney General Peter Narona, and uh, the, the last person there was the acting U.S. Attorney Richard Myris. So, Ted, one interesting nugget uh, going through the court paperwork on this one was those charged got caught, according to investigators, when they cashed their phony, allegedly phone, uh, phony jobless benefits at Twin River Casino instead of a bank. So, uh, you know, the sus suspicious activity was flagged to state police because when you cash something at Twin River, they charge like a 3% surcharge, but people usually go and gamble. What happened here allegedly is the defendants walked in, cashed the unemployment checks or debit cards in this case, and then walked out. So <laughs> why would you pay that fee? Um, and the thought is, uh, and they were charged, some of them were charged with, with money laundering. It was a way to try and mm. Uh, hide um, how they got the money. Well, it's, it's been, I mean, I'm sure we have viewers watching this morning who have experienced this or have a family member who experienced unemployment fraud because it's been so widespread. I remember yeah. early in the pandemic, we started to get the reports and thought, oh, a few, you know, and then just so many reports. It was unbelievable. Half our, I feel like half our own staff and colleagues yes. have been targeted. Um, one thing I thought was interesting, though, is you, you, I thought when you told me, you, because Tim always knows these things in advance, you told me this was coming, <laughs> uh, I thought it was going to be identity theft. So did but, I. Yeah, and then the, they're not charged with identity theft, which I, that it wasn't clear to me why. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, uh, as you point out, a lot of people have experienced identity theft with unemployment fraud. Either it happened to you or you know someone uh, that it happened to, and they weren't charged with aggravated identity theft because they weren't stealing, allegedly, people's identities. Ted, they were um, using their own. Mm. But what they were doing is they were applying to the Rhode Island Department of Labor in training in their name, but lying about their situation. Then they would apply to North Dakota. Then they would apply to California and uh, 11 different states, and they collected uh, a bunch of money that way. One defendant allegedly collected $90,000. Uh, Which is a lot of money under it, UI. It is absolutely a lot of money, but he, uh, he allegedly did that by casting a wide net with, with different states. So it's Did very you different. get a sense at the press conference, are they going to bring identity theft? Are they hoping to charge on the identity theft part of UI fraud over time? Are well, they, they already have in other cases. It's mm -hmm. a good question. As a matter of fact, Rhode Island. people are livid about oh, that. They messed up their about taxes it. and that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a lot of information on our website about that uh, for if you are a victim of that, what you need to do. But 
Um, Rhode Island, believe it or not, was the first state in the country, the District of Rhode Island, that actually brought a fraudulent um, CARES Act in this case. It was, a, it was a fraudulent PPP loan case. There had been other ones where five Florida men were charged with identity theft for uh, stealing Rhode Islanders, allegedly stealing Rhode Islanders' identities and then using them to obtain jobless benefits. So in all, 23 people have been charged in Rhode Island to the tune of $31 million. Some of them uh, charged with identity theft, but in this case, Ted, I don't foresee uh, identity theft being part of it because of the evidence that has uh, uh, been presented so far. Well, just to, just one final thought on it, which is from my world of covering the budget. I mean, you got to think about. I would I back of the envelope. I would say the feds have ponied up like five trillion dollars across the multiple stimulus relief appropriations bills. So. You, you know, you don't need a very high, you know, most of it's not fraud, but you don't need a very high percentage to be fraud to be a massive trillion. amount right. of money. Exactly. Right. So I think we're seeing that across these programs. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what the final tallies are for how much they think was fraudulent. Yeah, it's a big thing nationally that they're tracking. Let's shift gears. Um, the climate bill felt uh, like a, a really big story this week. For people at home that weren't following it closely, Ted, unpack the climate bill. What, 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 is it, what would it do? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say this is probably the biggest state law that has passed this year. It's not a law yet, but Governor McKee has said he would sign it. So it's a it's a it's a very aggressive updating of the Resilient Rhode Island Act from 2014. And it mandates that Rhode Island cut its carbon emissions to net its greenhouse gas emissions, I should say, to net zero by 2050. So over the next 30 years, um, you know, environmentalists are thrilled. They say this puts teeth into um, those restrictions to, to wean Rhode Island off of fossil fuels. Massachusetts just put in place a similarly uh, tough law with teeth. But that is also why opponents, I think, were so concerned about it, because they say, well, if we have to get to net zero, uh, you know, who's going, what is going to be mandated? Are we how much electrification are we talking about? Right. Uh, what, how much is it, what are the costs? Exactly. Is that going to be on businesses and households? And, you know, uh, it, it's hard not to think there'll be costs. You see, Massachusetts, there's a good story in the Globe this week about them already trying to think about, well, then should we be update, upgrading the gas lines? Uh, because then are right. we putting ratepayer money, good money after bad, because we're just, we're going to update yeah, why upgrade do the them infrastructure? And then quickly say you can't use them yeah. anymore. So it's, there's a lot of policy questions that are going to flow out of this. And I think that's why you saw Governor McKee kind of wavering, but there was a lot of pressure on him within the Democratic Party to stay in line on the climate bill. Well, there's a lot of policy questions, but also a lot of political questions. I mean, it shed new light on politics at the State House, right? Um, especially with a new governor, a new speaker, and as you have pointed out in the show many times, a Senate that has shifted left a little bit. I yeah, mean, I mean, this was there was an act on climate bill. There have been climate bills previously, and they, you know, when Nick Mattiello was speaker, he's more conservative. He bottled those up. Uh, Dominic Ruggiero was not pushing those. You know, have like a labor environmental coalition that was advancing this uh, together. But yeah, I think it's, you know, the governor, clearly this was one of the first times he had to choose between his kind of moderate business friendly, uh, you know, I'm not as left as the others and the pressure to stay in line Democratic Party. And in the end, he went along with the party, I think probably partly thinking about next year's primary. Mm -hmm. uh, Speaker Shikarchi, you know, he got the bill through, but he lost quite a few Democrats on the final vote, including some of his committee chairs. I was just going to say that. And yeah. that can undermine. What does that say? Well, just, you know, people to understand it's that. a reminder, first of all, that just as Nick Mattiello would lose Democrats, who were more um, center and left, um, who felt he was too conservative. Well, just you're just flipping it around, right? It, not to say that Joe Shikarchi is necessarily a wild-eyed, you know, far-left progressive or anything, but he's certainly advancing more liberal legislation than Mattiello did. Well, he's going to lose folks on the right and some in the center. 
Uh, and it's also, you know, we I've seen before now, I've covered a couple of House speakers, and they have to be careful. The more they allow defections and there's no consequences for those defectors, the more they're going to lose control of the House. And while that might seem good on the one hand from a democracy standpoint and the lawmakers being independent, it certainly makes it harder for a Speaker of the House to kind of uh, corral everybody. Um, and then, of course, the Senate, you just see, you know, all those progressive wins last year have had a huge effect on the Senate already and how the leadership is doing there. So it's, it's an interesting moment. I think it's I think we're going to we're going to remember this as a, a time we really start to see what these changes are. All right. Minute left. Something you've been tracking closely, and that's more discussion on how Rhode Island will spend the money from the latest round of relief uh, from President Biden's American Rescue Plan Act. Uh, we're hearing a little bit more about that. Yeah, we're starting to see how people are going to look at, again, talking about all the money coming in like we were in the fraud discussion. Um, so. The Rhode Island Foundation, which of course is an underwriter of this program, we should disclose, uh, announced they're going to work with RIPEC and the Economic Progress Institute. Uh, they've put together a 15-member panel over the next six months. They want to try to come up with uh, recommendations to state leaders about how to spend that money uh, and you know, to get input from the public. It's actually an email address you can send it to. And then also, uh, we saw Providence, our Steph Machado, uh, keeping a good eye on the budget, noticed six new jobs being added in Providence just to manage the Biden relief money hmm. uh, coming, including a director of PVD recovery. So, you know, I think it's really important. I've said it before in the show. Everyone keep a close eye on this, not just at the state uh, level, and, but and at uh, the local level. That's one level. thing I got from your report. 30 seconds, Ted. Uh, one thing I got from your report was everyone you talked to, well, not everyone, but the folks that are kind of watching this urge the public to get involved. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, people feel you know, often that their voices aren't heard, but <laughs> legislators, elected officials, they do listen to the they, public. Yes. And they, the, you know, public pressure is often what causes a good decision versus a bad decision. So people should pay attention. This is a lot of money. All right. We didn't get to Eleanor Slater Hospital. Our colleague Eli Sherman has done some great reporting on that. A lot going on. Check that out on WPRI.com. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.